they have been, our high school seniors have been taking a, a flurry of tests lately and are finally finished, right? Okay. But it's been, for all of the students, as the year closes, it's tests on the right hand, tests on the left. I was feeling quite sorry for Penny yesterday as she spent the entire time she was here grading tests. And by the time that the bouncer was picked up, she was through half of her stack. There was about 140 tests, she said. Each one takes about five minutes to do, so she had done 75 tests or so by the time the bouncer was picked up, which was the end of the picnic. Anyway, been so many tests, so what's one more, right? Why not get back into First John and take another test? But this test, obviously, is different. Now, there are three kinds of tests in First John. There is the faith test, the doctrinal test, first of all, faith in God's Son. Then there is the moral test, that is, obedience to God's commandments. And then there is the relational test, love for God's people. And we need to pass each and every one of these. These tests reveal whose we are, whether we are children of God or children of the devil. Now, I want you to note something as we look at this. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 3, 1 John 3, 2. John said that while we are God's children now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, what we will be has not yet appeared. That is, what we will be, what form and look we will take when we are glorified with Christ, that has not yet appeared, except we know that we will be like Jesus when he returns. So what we will be is not yet apparent. Now look down at verse 10, which is where we concluded last week. In verse 10, John says, By this it is evident. And evident is the same word that is translated appeared in verse 2. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you can sum up verse 2 and verse 10 like this, come to this conclusion. It is not yet apparent what we will be, but it is apparent now what we are. It is not yet apparent what we will be, but it is apparent now what we are, or better, whose we are. Children of God or children of the devil. So last week, as we were making our way through verses 4 through 10, we were taking the moral test for the third time in this letter. But that was the most complete statement of it. Verses 4 through 10. And as you come to the end of verse 10, we read again, you know, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There's the moral test. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that last line of verse 10 transitions us into the love test of verses 11 to 18. So let's take up our reading there in verse 11. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that once again, as we come to your word, we take this test and our hearts are exposed for what we truly are and whose we truly are. I, it is my hope, Father, it's my prayer that all of us who are gathered in this room today would pass this test. But Father, if there is someone who does not pass the test in truth, I pray that they would realize it. I pray that the blinders would be removed from their eyes and they would wake up from any kind of deceit and, and see their true heart condition, repent of their sin and fly to Jesus. And we know, Father, your promise in Him that anyone who comes to you in Him will never be turned away. I thank you for the full and free forgiveness that we can have in Christ. I thank you, Father, for the love that you have showed to us in him, that he laid down his life for us. Now I pray, Father, give us your spirit that we might ha have understanding of what this love is, that we might know it truly in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that by the strength of your spirit, we would follow Christ's pattern and lay down our lives for one another. Help us. Have mercy on us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin again in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There's such a common idea afloat in the church today that my relationship with God is all about me and God, and it's personal and private and to the exclusion of others. And it's a lie. It's a damned lie. And I mean that literally, not in any kind of vain or crude, vulgar way. It's a lie that will end up in hell like every other one of the devil's lies. This message, this idea that my relationship with God is just all about me and God to the exclusion of others is a cultural idea. It's not a biblical idea. In fact, it's antithetical to the gospel message very, very clearly. And it's a destroyer of souls. The message of the gospel right from the very beginning 
is receive it, receive God's love, and then extend that love outward to all others. The message the gospel declares to the people of God from the beginning is love. That's the one priority we have. I I have told you before, and I don't think it was too long ago that I told this little story from when I was a kid. At the end of every meal that my dad was at, my he was often gone because he was a pilot and he'd be gone for a week at a time or so, but at every dinner meal that he was at, he'd rise from his place and he'd say, look at us kids, three of us, and he'd say, I have one word for you. And we'd all be like, yeah, we know, spotless. He wanted the kitchen to be cleaned up. He wanted it spotless. And that was our priority until spotless was accomplished. Nothing else mattered but spotless. And we heard that message over and over and over again. And John is saying that same kind of thing here. He is saying, not spotless. This is the message to the church. It's love. This is your priority. Love. And he says, you've heard it from the beginning. In other words, to put it in a contemporary phrasing, if you've heard this once, you've heard it a thousand times, but I'm going to tell you again. Love. That's your priority. Does love direct your day? Does love direct your schedule? I know that so easily we can get stressed out by the busyness of life. Stress from home, stress from jobs. And sometimes we can't make sense of up from down. We don't know what to put where and what to put you know, in order, whatever. We get stressed and we have difficulty prioritizing our lives. Now, we have difficulty prioritizing things anyway, but especially during seasons of stress. I don't care really what you drop from your schedule, but don't drop this from your schedule. Love. Make love the priority of your life. It doesn't matter to me and it doesn't matter to the word, I think, what gets dropped down to second. But never drop love below first. This is the message that the gospel has declared to us from the beginning that we should love others with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is love the priority of your life? Do you remember this verse from Peter? Above all, he said, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Is it? Is love covering a multitude of sins? Is love very quick in your life to forgive other people and cover their sins? And does love in your life kill all of those easy sins of our hearts? Easy, I mean, because they're easy for us to fall into. Sins like bitterness and resentment and anger and self-pity and self-assertion. Is love killing those easy sins, covering the multitude of sins that are so easy for us to fall into? so easy for us to maintain in our hearts. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we are to love one another. In verse 12, 
John shows us a pattern that we must reject. He's going to give us two patterns. The pattern to reject and the pattern that we must all embrace. Okay, here's the pattern to reject. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain is the pattern that we must reject. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother Abel. John says, why did he murder him? And as soon as he asks, he answers his own question. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Abel's walk in the light exposed Cain's darkness. Light always exposes darkness. And Cain couldn't have that. And so, so he murdered him. He murdered him because he couldn't stand for Abel to look better than him. He couldn't stand to be in second place. In fact, he would rather have Abel dead than Cain have second place. And that's why he killed him. And doesn't this rather expose our own hearts? Because how often do we hurt other people so that we will either look better or feel better about ourselves? In fact, we do this right from the beginning. I don't know for sure, but I could even imagine my boys doing it right there in the pew this morning. Joel has this toy that I want, and so I will hurt Joel, this is Marshall speaking, in order to have this toy, in order to have this happiness. They do it all the time. Whap, 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 give me that toy. Joel's crying, and now I'm happy. This is what we do from the youngest age. You know, we hurt other people so that we can be happy. We do something at their expense so we can gain. And that's in the pattern of Cain. And it, it exposes us. And it's, I mean, it's really, human beings are obviously extremely messed up. But this is, Cain provided for the world the prototype. He is the pattern that the world has followed right from the beginning. And that's why John says in verse 13, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Because the darkness will always hate the light. Because the light exposes the darkness. The world will always hate the righteous just because of our righteousness. Then in verse 14, we'll come back to that pattern in a moment. But in verse 14, he gives the clearest statement of this relational test, this love test that we're taking. First, you'll see that he states it positively. And then he'll state it negatively. Okay, it's kind of like you have, imagine this question on a paper before you. You've got option A, and you've got option B. And whichever one fits your life, you, you check it off. A or B. A. We, you know that you have passed out of death into life because you love the brothers. Actually, let me simplify it. Option A, you love the brothers. Now, it simply means the church. You love the family of God. You love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. B, you don't love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, if you've checked off A, you love the brothers, your answer is you have passed out of death into life. You've, you've passed the test, you have passed out of death into life. If you've answered B, then the conclusion is that you abide 
in death. Now, I want you to be careful here. I want us to be very careful. Because the way that this test goes, it's not like this. You love the brothers, you give of yourself, you love the church, and therefore you have passed out of death and into life. That's not the way it goes. It's not that you give of yourself and then you pass, therefore, out of death into life. Because that would be works salvation. I love and therefore I have life. That's not the way it goes. In fact, it's I love and it's proof that I have passed out of death into life. It's the evidence. So giving of yourself and loving the church is not the requirement of passing out of death into life. It's the result of passing out of death into life. I hope that is very clear in everybody's mind. But this is the clearest statement of the test. There's A and there's B. A, I love the brothers. B, I don't. If I do, it is proof I have passed out of death into life. And if it's B, if I don't love the brothers, it's proof that I continue to remain in death. Now, take the test. Testing your life and your heart. Testing how you feel about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And testing your life, what you do and what you give. Does the standard hold in your life? Does the standard hold true for you? And if the standard of love doesn't hold true, the Bible says you continue to abide in death. But I do want to just pause for a minute and and revel in this a little bit. The Bible says, loving is the proof we have passed out of death and into life. And the statement that John is giving is really alluding to something that Jesus said in the gospel that John wrote. Jesus said, listen to this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. By the grace of God, Through faith in His Son, we have passed from death to life. So, what if the world, like Cain, does end up killing us? Because of their hatred for our righteousness. What if persecution in this country becomes so severe in our stand for righteousness that the world, like Cain, takes the lives of the righteous? They can take our lives, but they can never take our life. Because we have passed from death to life. And that life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ can never be lost. It will never be forfeited. We are absolutely secure in Christ forever. Jesus said it's eternal life. And it's something that we can't give up. And it's something that the world The devil of hell himself can never take from us. That's just something to pause and to revel in a little bit and to thank the Lord for. We have passed from death to life. The proof of it is that we love the brothers and sisters that we have in the family of God. 
Now let's go back to that pattern of Cain. John says in verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, literally, everyone who hates his, hates his brother is a murderer. Literally, no. Not literally. But, let's be very clear, that John means every single word he says here. He is saying that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, even if he doesn't go ahead and actually physically murder him, because his heart is the same. When you are dead set, and I'm not using any word loosely here, every word matters. When you are dead set on your personal gain at another person's expense, you end up hating and murdering that individual. And so every murder is motivated by personal gain. Every murder is motivated by personal gain. Whether that gain is money or vengeance or some kind of sick satisfaction, every murder is motivated by, I am dead set on personal gain at that person's expense. And hatred is the same. Hatred is set on my personal gain at your expense. But love is the opposite. Let me say it again. Hatred is set on my personal gain at your expense. So plus me and minus for you. And love is the opposite. Love is set on the other's gain at my own expense. So plus for you, minus for me, gladly. Hatred, my personal gain at your expense. Love, your gain at my expense. And hatred says, when it's done wrong, when a person is done wrong who hates, they, what do they say? You will pay for this. And then they exact some kind of vengeance, right? But love doesn't do that. Love says, I'll pay for this. You have done me wrong but I will pay for this. And this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness says, I'll pay for this. Though you have done me wrong, I'm not going to get you back. You're not going to pay for this at all. You're not going to pay for it with my silent treatment, my ongoing bitterness and deepening resentment. You're not going to pay for it with my backhand to your face. You're not going to pay anyway, anyhow. I will pay for this. I will absorb the hurt. And I will take on the cost myself. And I will not even bring it up against you in my mind to your hurt. And that's why we say forgive and forget. Not that you actually literally completely forget that that thing ever happened to you. But you never again bring up that thing in your mind to the other person's hurt. You don't stew over it. You don't get bitter or resentful. Forgiveness says it's gone from you. I'll pay for it myself. So hatred and love are the opposites. John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But speaking of, I'll pay for it, John writes, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So Cain represents the pattern that the world follows. 
and that we must reject. And Christ is the pattern that we who have passed out of death into life must embrace for ourselves. Christ is the pattern, the only pattern that we must follow. John says this is love. We, we would never, we would never know the, the height and the, the maximum of love except that Jesus laid down his life for us. I, I want us to think about this for a moment. This, this is what happens when you meditate on the word of God. And I encourage all of you, I, I don't care how much of the Bible you read in a day, if you can take some time and meditate on a single verse or a single phrase, meditate on the Word of God. You pause. You slow down over certain words and you let them sink in. There's two words I want us to slow down over and let sink in. He laid down His life for us. There is no spectrum of value and worth between He and us. There is no spectrum of value and worth. Because I say that because a a spectrum always has a beginning point and an end point. There's always a measurable distance, whether this way or this way, between the beginning and the end. So He is on one end and us, we are on the other end. And there is no measurable distance between He and us because He is the Most High God. He is the the Eternal God, Lord of heaven and earth, Creator of all things, the One to whom belongs all honor and glory and blessing and praise. There is no measurable distance between He and us. Right? So there's no, no spectrum there because it's infinite. The distance between... He and us is infinite because He is of infinite value and infinite worth and beauty and glory above us. So what does it mean that He would love us like this? If you can't measure the distance of value between He and us, you can't possibly measure what kind of love this is. That He would lay down His life for us. This is measureless, immeasurable, incomprehensible love that Jesus Christ Most High would take on flesh just to have that flesh torn and hung up on a cross naked to die. Do you know love? This is the only way we know true love. That He would lay down His life for us. John has been talking about knowing. We've talked about this a lot. Knowing. He talks about it all through the letter about three dozen times. He says, you know, or we know, or some form of that, you know. You know? About three dozen times. What do we know in the gospel if we do not know love? He laid down his life for us. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 3. He was praying that the church would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Which is just a a paradox right there, right? 
Know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. And, and Paul was saying, you can know this love truly, as John is implying in this passage, 1 John 3. He's saying you can truly know this love, but you can never know this love exhaustively. Know it truly, but forget about knowing exhaustively. You, you climb this love, you will never reach the peak. You descend the depths of this love, you will never find the bottom of it. You search it out, you will never get to the ends of this love. Height, depth, breadth, all of it, you will never exhaustively know the love of Christ. And a, f- a couple weeks ago, maybe it was just last week, I was referencing this passage from Psalm 8. David, David said, when I look into your heavens, the work of your hands, the, the moon and the stars that you have made, what is man, he said, who am I that you would be mindful of me? He said, what is the son of man that you care for him? Who am I that you would care for me? He just looked into the stars. There's a few thousand, maybe several thousand stars that you can see with the naked eye. Today, we are seeing things in space that David never could have dreamed of. How much more should we wonder at the love of God for us, the mindfulness and the care of God for us by what we can see today, that He would come down to love us. And not only creation, we can see so much more of the beauty of God in creation than David could see, at least physically. I don't know, I don't think that we have His spiritual sight and perception, but physically we can see so much more of that. But it's not just His work in creation but his work through his son on the cross, which David, although he prophesied of, never could truly imagine to what lengths the love of God would go for him to make us his own. But in hindsight, we're looking back 2,000 years ago to God's work on the cross. So you could could rephrase Psalm 8. You could add to it. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and when I look further at the work of the cross and Jesus giving up His life on the cross, what is man that you are mindful of Him? Who am I that you should care for me and Who am I that you would give your life for mine? And John is saying, if that, if you truly know that love, it's going to change your life. And if your life is not changed by the knowledge of that love, then you you really don't know it. You truly have not seen it. If your life has not been changed by it. And that's what he says at the end of that verse. Verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, how can we lay down our lives? Jesus physically laid down His life for us. Should we be standing around busy intersections waiting for some distracted 
person who's texting to walk into oncoming traffic and we can lay down our lives for them? You don't get an opportunity every day, maybe never, unless you're a firefighter or a police officer or, you know, you're in the military or something, to actually lay down your life for somebody, put your life at risk for someone. And so John gives us what it means practically. For every, you know, normal person out there, what does it mean to lay down your life? He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. You can just, you can see it. He's, he's sheltering what he's got. He's hoarding. This is mine. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? And it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. If God, who is most high, came all the way down to do this to us, to serve us and lay down his life, how could I not love and not give up what I have? Those who close their hearts must think that they're better than God. God, who is infinite, lay down his life for us. God, the immortal, the infinite, lay down his life for the finite, the mortal, the sinners. And would we not lay down our lives for those who are on equal footing with us? Who are on par with us? There's a very clear principle in this passage. This is not the only place that you can draw this principle from in in the Bible. It's all in the book of Acts too, the early days of the church. Here's the principle. When the members of a church have their wants satisfied, there should be no member in the church that doesn't have their needs met. When the members of a church have their wants satisfied, there should be no member who doesn't have their needs met. What good reason would we possibly have for withholding love and hoarding how God has blessed us? I mean, you would have to think that you get credit for the things that you have and that those things are your own. The Bible says you're not your own and the things that you have are blessings from God. They're not your own either. We have been blessed in order to bless others. And so the emphasis here in 1 John is especially on blessing our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you could think to yourself, okay, what belongs to God? Everything that I have. Who belongs to God that needs what I have more than I do? Then give it to them. What belongs to God? Everything I have. Who belongs to God who needs it more than I do? Give it to them. You see, manna from heaven isn't on the doorstep of God's people anymore every time we wake up in the morning. Or six days a week as it was in the Old Testament. We are God's supply. We are the storehouse of God's blessing. We are His hands and His feet. And we are His eyes. And when we see a need, when we understand the need that someone is in, we are responsible to share what we have to help those who are in need. And the Bible doesn't say, in fact, Paul is very clear in 2 Corinthians, it's not so that you they can be advantaged and you disadvantage, it, it is so that there will be a, a fairness. And so we give what we have, what God has blessed us with, to those who belong to the Lord who need it. 
John Stott kind of summarized it up with this. I think this is helpful. He said, as life does not dwell in the murderer, verse 15, so love does not dwell in the miser, verse 17. As life does not dwell in the murderer who takes it, so love does not dwell in the miser who withholds it. And then he adds, John adds, this final word, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Do you remember how often through the first couple chapters, at least first chapter and a half, we were talking about those who profess faith, those who say they know God, but who don't live it. They have the talk, but not the walk. They, they say they have fellowship with God, but they actually walk in darkness. We said about them, they are all talk. I think that the Apostle John is sick and tired of the talk of all the frauds. And so he says to us, let's not be all about talk. Let us love in deed and truth. Let us put our feet behind it and our hands behind it. Let us love from the heart and from the body from the supply, the blessing that God has given to us. Let us actually love. I believe that our church is doing well. For a number of months, through the, very, the end of two, <coughs> 2013, through the, through the end of 2013 and the first couple months of 2014, I was saying to our church family, we are in a season of weeping. And I, I think maybe it, it took a while for everybody to get it because things were unfolding. And by the time it had all unfolded, and we were losing people from our church family who were leaving and losing folk in our community and from our family who were dying. And uh, we were in that season of weeping. And I believe that we're over that. I believe that we have moved from the season of weeping. I believe that now is a season of rejoicing. And actually, honestly, I don't think that we have ever been in a better place as a church because we are unified as a church and also we are in a prime place right now to give from our hearts and from the store with which God has blessed us with to others. We are in a prime place to bless, to love. But let us love in deed and in truth. Because all that potential and that store and all, all of that could be lost if we don't act on it. I believe we're going to act on it. And we must be faithful to and we must continue to act on it. We're in a good place right now. And I'm excited. And I'm also proud, very proud, to be the pastor of this church family. Because the people of this church are so generous and give from the heart. Keep on giving. Keep on giving from the heart. Give with joy. God loves a cheerful giver. We have a lot of potential right now to make a big impact in the lives of this community. But I want to ask you something. I want to ask you a diagnostic question for your heart. Do you want to see people eat? 
or further do you want to see people eat with us? Do you want to see them joining us around the fellowship of the Lord's table, the people of this community? Will you welcome them into your home? Because it's it's easy. It's loving, but it's easy to give a cash donation to the food pantry. It's it's more, it's further, it's it's harder, it's more sacrificial to extend to invest your life in somebody. Beyond your pocketbook, your life into someone. Do you want to see them not only eat, but do you want to see them eat with us? What do you want? What do you imagine this church look looking like demographically? You know, economically and and ethnically and all of that. What do you want this church to look like? Do you want it to look white, mostly white, and mostly middle class? I don't. I don't. Because I want, I want to see a true picture of the body of Christ, what we see in heaven, people of every tongue and language and nation and, and, and so on. That's the picture of heaven. A great big mix. I want, I want all's chapel to look like that. And of course, being the community that we are, it's always going to be more white and, and whatever. But just think, what do you want this church to look like? I think it's a good diagnostic question for the love that's in your heart. I'm going to sum up this message with a word from John Stott, this passage. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. But love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. It's the love test. It shows whose we are. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to love as we have been given love, as we've been shown love, full love and free love. I pray that our hearts would be full to overflowing with love and we would give it freely, not expecting in return. I pray, Father, that we would be more loving than we have ever been before And I pray that we would continue to grow, that we would never just plateau in our love, not for one another, not for the lost of our community. Pray that we will grow in love. But this isn't natural for us. Naturally, we're of Cain. But supernaturally, spiritually, we know that we are of Christ. So I pray that you would form us into the image of your Son. And we would grow ever more to be like him. It's not yet apparent what we will be. But it's apparent already, Father, whose we are. What we are. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to you, to whose we are, all the way until Christ makes us what we will be. Help us to be faithful until we're glorified with him. In his name we pray. Amen.